according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Once again, we are in the book of Isaiah. Anybody want to do 53 all over again? I do. I enjoyed 53 last week, but we are in 54 this week. Moving on to Isaiah 54. Shout for joy, O barren one, you who have borne no child. Break forth into joyful shouting and cry aloud, you who have not travailed. Hey, here's a you who. You who have not travailed. Last hour in our Galatians series, we were looking at a lot of you who passages. For the sons of the desolate one will be more numerous than the sons of the married woman, says the Lord. All right, before we get started, let's take a moment for silent prayer. Ask God the Father to set aside distractions and to take every thought captive in obedience to Christ Jesus. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, I do thank you for the truth of your word and the blessing we have to assemble together. I thank you for the prophet Isaiah. I thank you for his life, his ministry, and most of all, Father, for this, uh, these powerful 66 chapters that the Holy Spirit composed through his authorship. I thank you, Father, for the chapter-by-chapter approach that, we, that you have blessed us with for these last 53 weeks. And Father, I uh, just pray that we would be humble before your truth that as we learn on a survey basis what these chapters are about, that perhaps a day would come that you would allow us to go back and get even more of the meat that comes from this powerful, powerful book. We ask for your blessing upon our study today, and I thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Well, you might expect that 53 does not end the book, although I'd be happy to close the book with 53 because it was so powerful. And yet, in the plan of God... Getting us saved is not the end of his plan. And so sending his son to die on the cross is, uh, is a powerful message, and it is indeed a pivotal moment in human history. Uh, Galatians calls it the, uh, the fullness of the time when, the, when Jesus was born, born of a woman, born under the law, that it was at the pivotal moment of human history that the God-man died on the cross for our sins, but that was not the end of the plan of God that that then empowered and made possible for what follows. And for you and I in the church, of course, it makes possible our part in the body of Christ as church-age saints and royal family of God and so forth. However, for Israel, it also makes possible for the blood of the covenant to be applied to them as a nation and for them to enter into the millennial kingdom. Uh, John the Baptist was announcing the kingdom is at hand, but for the nation to be cleansed and to be sanctified and to be prepared for that kingdom, the blood of Jesus Christ must be shed. And so uh, these are issues that we need to deal with, and that's what we get into now in these chapters that follow, chapter 53. So we have some millennial uh, applications here in 54 and 55 and 56, and uh, the, the chapters that now follow. All right, shout for joy, as we say, O barren one. For you who have borne no child, you who have borne no child. Eschatological Jerusalem is spoken of as a barren non-mother who can finally shout for joy, who can finally shout for joy. And it's been a while, okay? But a long while. If you think Sarah had to wait a long time to have her baby, that was only 90 years. All right, Jerusalem has been waiting 2,000 years since they crucified the Christ and said, His blood be upon us and upon our children. And then the nation of Israel came under the divine discipline that they came under in the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD and the global dispersion of the Jewish people that has been in effect ever since. All right, but finally, eschatological Jerusalem, that is Jerusalem in the end days, is spoken of as a barren non-mother who can finally shout for joy. You who have borne no child, break forth into joyful shouting and cry aloud. You who have not travailed. Even better, uh, you know, she, she gets to see this baby. In one sense, you can say she gets to see this baby without childbirth. Not entirely true because the tribulation itself is the beginning of birth pangs and she will have tremendous childbirth pains to bring the kingdom into the world. 
For the sons of the desolate one will be more numerous than the sons of the married woman, says the Lord. And what we have spoken here is a tension between wives, a dynamic between women, in particular with the evils of polygamy and the other aspects. In fact, it's great that the Lord brought us to this chapter today because we were just talking about Sarah and Hagar uh, this morning, and we'll have more coming up on Wednesday between Sarah and Hagar and the tension, the competition between them that comes up again with Leah and Rachel, that comes up again and again and again and again. Why does God keep giving us these stories about women that can't have babies? Okay, And even uh, the mother of John the Baptist, Zechariah and Elizabeth, quite elderly in their age and can't have babies until the birth of John the Baptist. And God is making a point again and again and again and again, painting a picture for what He will fulfill in the Millennial Kingdom. All right, so... We have this. Now we understand as we're looking at this, let me get through these other verses here. Let me get down through verse 10 even. Let's take a look at this. Uh, Verse 2 says, enlarge the place of your tent, stretch out the curtains of your dwelling, spare not, lengthen your cords and and, uh, strengthen your pegs. In other words, uh, there's a baby coming and this tent's not big enough. Okay, you ever understand that? Maybe, you know, you're newlyweds, you're in this little apartment somewhere. Uh, but, you know, the kids start coming and you realize, wait a minute, this, uh, we're just going to need more room. All right. You know, and the, the second kid comes, the third kid comes, you're thinking, man, we're, we're, we're approaching minivan territory here now. What are we doing? And, and, and so what do you do if you're living in a tent? I mean, there's only so much room in a tent, right? And, uh, well, make a bigger tent. Enlarge the place of your tent. Stretch out the curtains of your dwelling. In other words, add some more canvas. Uh, We'll stretch this out more. We'll get a higher pole and we'll stretch the canvas further. All right. Lengthen your cords. Strengthen your pegs. All right. Have you ever been camping or were in the army at all? You know what this is all about. For you will spread abroad to the right and to the left. Yeah, you will. Your descendants will possess nations and will resettle the desolate cities. There's no question. Once the kids start coming, then, you know, you, you start accumulating stuff and then you start slowing down and other things that happen there. Fear not, for you will not be put to shame. And do not feel humiliated or stop feeling humiliated, for you will not be disgraced. You will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood you will remember no more. You know, the older you start getting and the, the, you start to wonder, you know, a woman starts to wonder, um, you know, the, the husband's not going to be around as long as I am. And my widowhood is coming up. And my widowhood is coming up as soon as, you know, the husband departs. And if I don't have the kids to take care of me in my older years, what's, you know, what becomes of me? What, how does this work? In the, in, you can imagine the fear that would approach a, a woman in, in this circumstance. Um, and that's assuming that he stays with you to the older years. What if he just bails on you in divorce and leaves you uh, in your younger years? So your, for your husband is your maker, whose name is the Lord of hosts, and your redeemer is the Holy One of Israel, who is called the God of all the earth. And uh, he's going to uh, reassure her in this chapter about what she has to look forward to in the millennial kingdom. Verse uh, 6. For the Lord has called you like a wife forsaken and grieved in spirit. Remember, she has uh, not been very faithful in this marriage. And uh, in fact, uh, she was sent away for her own harlotries, for her own adulteries. Um, So like a wife forsaken and grieved in spirit, even like a wife of one's youth when she is rejected, says your God, for a brief moment I forsook you, but with great compassion I will gather you. See, here's the thing. Just like the prophet Hosea, he's taking her back. All right? And this is what Hosea was commanded to do in his prophetic ministry. This is what Yahweh is going to do himself. This is what he prophesies, that in the millennial kingdom, he is taking back his faithless harlot wife. And uh, he just says, for a brief moment I forsook you. In uh, verse 8, in an outburst of anger, I hid my face from you for a moment. But with everlasting loving kindness, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. And this is the picture here. You know, it's interesting if you ever study the doctrine of divorce and you study the mechanism under Mosaic law and the 
Pharisees try to trip Jesus up on this and, uh, and, and attack his views and whatever. But he went back to Moses, he went back to the law, and he said, look, Moses never commanded divorce. He permitted it because of hardness of heart. But in the permission that's given, then there are procedures for reconciliation. And in fact, as, they, as he does send her away, he must remain unmarried or else reconcile her back. All right, because if he takes another wife in the meantime, or if she takes another husband in the meantime, then he can never take her back again. All right, and there's a reason why that's given that way. Because he himself is prophesying of what he's going to do with faithless Israel when he takes her back for the millennial kingdom, when he remarries her for the millennial kingdom. All right, and so the picture on this, even with something as ugly as divorce, is being crafted by the Lord to paint a picture of what ultimate glory is all about. And to me, I just think that's uh, amazing. All right, then we get into the days of Noah, some things there in in verse 9. I'm going to come back to that here in a moment. Let's just start with this. First of all, this barren non-mother, okay? One thing we can do with this, and we we can do it today because of last hour, We can actually allegorize Sarah. Not only can we do that, but the Bible does that. The Bible takes the barren woman and uses her to teach a doctrine. And the Bible does that in Galatians chapter 4. Sarah can be allegorized to a prophetic application. Now in Galatians, it's Sarah the person. Here in Isaiah 54, it's Jerusalem or Israel, the people, but the concept is is still the same. God is using the, the language of metaphor, speaking of her as a barren woman and communicating to her the promises of what she can look forward to, what it is that she can anticipate in ways that the typical barren woman cannot, okay? God does what, of course, man cannot do, and he makes promises, and he makes good on those promises, And so the barren non-mother has good things to look forward to, including children and including the uh, the blessings of a restored marriage, even though she has been as faithless as she has been. Now, I'm going to save some time on this because, um, uh, like I say, we were just here last hour. What a what a uh, combination of providence there, huh? Galatians 4. I won't even tell you that I planned it that way. But the Lord had us in Galatians 4.27 this morning. If you think that your pastor is that slick and clever that he could coordinate this uh, months and months ago when we started each of these book studies. The um, allegorically speaking, these women are two covenants. All right. Galatians 4.21 says, Tell me, you who want to be under law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the bondwoman and one by the free woman. And so he's going to make an allegory out of the literal history of, of Isaac and Ishmael and how they were born. And the son of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh. That is no faith, human effort, trying to help God with his promises. The son of the free woman was born by grace through faith. Hearing with faith, as it says here, hearing with faith, believing in the promises. And so we have the allegory here in Galatians 4. This is allegorically speaking. These women are two covenants, one proceeding from Sinai, bearing children who are to be slaves. She is Hagar. Uh, This Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponding to the present Jerusalem, for she is slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free. She is our mother. She is our mother. And then on Wednesday, when we come back to this study, we're going to come back to these verses. And what are we going to see? We're going to see a quotation from Isaiah 54.1. <laughs> and the Apostle Paul uses Isaiah 54.1 when he says, For it is written, Rejoice, barren woman who does not bear. Break forth and shout, you who are not in labor. For more numerous are the children of the desolate one than the one who has a husband. All right, so stay tuned for that Wednesday night and uh, in the classes that follow. So as we can take these women as representative of larger doctrinal truths, we start to recognize that the story of the barren woman and the competition with other women is actually given repeatedly throughout the Old Testament. We can turn to Sarah versus Hagar and we can see this illustration. We can learn about the hostility between Hagar and Sarah and the scorn that Hagar showed uh, Sarah when Hagar conceived and the mocking 
that, I- that Ishmael uh, reflected towards Isaac at uh, the birth of Isaac in, I- in Isaac's childhood. All right. So we have the pattern of Sarah versus Hagar. If you ever want to study that out over the chapters of Genesis 16 through 21. Or we have the pregnancy contest between um, Rachel and Leah in Genesis 29 and 30. So desperate were they, uh, Rachel specifically, to try to keep up with Leah and the number of children Leah was was uh, uh, having. Rachel decided to apply the uh, what I call Operation Hagar, right? Saying, hey, here's my handmaid, make babies. All right, and so rather than learning from the mistake of Genesis chapter 16, uh, Rachel just makes it worse. Rachel repeats the mistake of Genesis 16 and gives her maiden handmaid to uh, to her husband to try to have a baby that way. And you go through all of that. Even Samuel's mother in 1 Samuel chapter one, uh, Samuel was the last of the prophets, the first of the of the or the last of the judges, the first of the prophets was Samuel, and his mother likewise was a barren woman. And uh, one of two that were uh, married in a polygamous marriage to uh, her husband, uh, her rival was named Penina, 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 however. Anyway, her rival was the one that was having babies, and and Hannah was not, and uh, and it grieved her, and and the stigma that was associated with that was so much that it clouded her spiritual judgment, and that happens. Bios life clouds our Zoe life, and we allow for temporal life circumstances to cloud how we look at things. And even though Elkanah, her husband, tried to say, wait a minute, you're better to me than 10 sons, um, I think he probably just made it worse by saying that, <laughs> right? Husbands typically say thoughtless things. And so he says, you're better to me than 10 sons, and that just put a number on the, you know, the children she wasn't having. And uh, in any event, she prays and she uh, gives this to the Lord, and here comes the blessing, uh, again, by faith, the birth of uh, Samuel. But all of these are illustrations of the barren becoming fruitful, of what God does in his sovereignty. And just because humanity says there is no provision for this, God says that doesn't limit what, what I promised. Okay? Are you 90 years old, Sarah? Is your husband 100 years old? God says that's not a problem. I'm still in charge when it comes to all of these things. If Jerusalem has waited 2,000 years to shout for joy in the uh, arrival of this kingdom, God says that's not a problem. Uh, I'm, I've got a handle on this. I'm, I'm in charge. We can appreciate that. Here is a very remarkable uh, prophecy in verses 9 and 10 that we want to kind of go into related to the days of Noah. And I find this extraordinary. It doesn't usually get preached with the uh, Olivet Discourse, but it should, in some respects, be taught in that context. Because we're told here, as it was in the days of Noah... Isaiah 54, verses 9 and 10. And it's different than what we're accustomed to in, the, um, in, uh, in, in our Savior's teaching and what the Lord taught in Matthew 24. Um, but nevertheless, let's see what happens here. Verses 9 and 10. For this is like the days of Noah to me, when I swore that the waters of Noah would not flood the earth again. So I have sworn that I will not be angry with you, nor will I rebuke you. For the mountains may be removed and the hills may shake, but my loving kindness will not be removed from you and my covenant of peace will not be shaken, says the Lord who has compassion on you. And we have here a promise. In other words, when God is thinking about Israel and he talks about the days of Noah, he's not talking about the evil that preceded the judgment. He's talking about the, the never again promise after the judgment. And I like that. I like that as an, as an addendum to the other message, all right? Because uh, we typically think of the days of Noah in the apostasy that you and I see all around us. We think of the days of Noah uh, through, that permeates our culture, permeates our churches, permeates the world. And we're just looking around thinking, why hasn't the second advent happened yet? <laughs> why, what's God waiting for? How much, be- how much worse can it get? All right? And I, I'm cautious to say that out loud because I think sometimes you verbalize those things and you're actually tempting God when you, when you verbalize those things out loud. Um, I, I, you can get a lot worse, all right? And, and, and I know that. But um, nevertheless, I think it's useful to have the days of Noah doctrinally. I mean, yeah, there's a story there, there's a narrative, there's the history of it, but what is the doctrine that comes out of it? What is the application? What are the principles that then apply in the body of Christ and for the nation of Israel? the great value of the doctrine of Noah. 
And of course, <laughs> all the experts, the scientists, all the worldly people tell you it's not true. It's a myth. It's a fairy tale. It's a story. Noah wasn't real. There wasn't a flood and all of these things. And while they're mocking and dismissing the story, they're also, I believe Satan, is uh, intentionally damaging the very doctrine itself that we're supposed to learn from, uh, from that episode, from these things. Well, obviously, when Jesus teaches on the days of Noah in Matthew 24, he is speaking of the godlessness that precedes the wrath. Matthew 24, this is the Olivet Discourse, verses 36 through 41. When Jesus teaches this, he's talking about the godlessness that precedes the wrath. I'm not going to spend a ton of time on this. If you want to get more, and I recommend it, if you're rusty on these messages, the Life of Christ series, let me tell you, we went through this in nauseating detail over weeks and weeks in this one chapter. Um, you got to know that when we're talking eschatologically, when we're speaking about Israel's future, that it, it is still future, okay? It hasn't happened yet. Don't believe the liberals that tell you that all of that was fulfilled with Antiochus Epiphanes or that all of that was fulfilled with, uh, with uh, uh, 70 AD and, and Titus's destruction of Jerusalem. It is still yet future for you and I today. Jesus spoke of it as future and uh, we accept it as such. All right. So what do they have to look forward to? Well, false cries, wars, rumors of wars, um, but when you see, and those are just the beginning of birth pangs. But when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of through Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. This is not a prophecy of, of the Romans destroying Jerusalem. This is a prophecy of Antichrist defiling the rebuilt temple, uh, turning the rebuilt holy of holies into his center of idolatry. And when that happens, get out of town. Those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. If you're on the housetop, don't even waste time going through the house. You know, however you got to the housetop, just jump straight off. <laughs> jump straight off and keep running. Don't waste time going through the house to get down off that roof. Don't go inside to get the cloak or whatever. Don't, if you're in the field, don't go back. Woe to you if you're pregnant and nursing babies in those days. You know, pregnant women don't run very fast. Um, pray that your flight will not be in the winter or on a Sabbath and all these things. And uh, this is uh, the, the great tribulation as it's described. It is future for Israel. It has not happened. And unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. Satan has enough destructive power to obliterate humanity and he may even attempt to do so in the tribulation. But Jesus Christ cuts it short. And we can claim that as a promise. Unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. And this is, this is the, the glory of how God gives a prophecy of 70 weeks, how you can count the days, you can count the, the months and the days, except you can't count because he says, I'm going to come back early. I'm going to cut it short. I'm going to return like a thief in the night. And you don't know how short. <laughs> and that's why it's both a calendar with a definite end and an imminent return as a thief in the night because it's cut short here. So do they only do six years out of the seven? Do they do, uh, you know, out of the second two and a half, uh, three and a half years, out of those second 42 months, do they only do 40, 39, 38? We don't know. They don't know. Satan doesn't know. But those days do get cut short. All right. But then, immediately after the tribulation of those days, verse 29, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from the sky, the powers of the heavens will be shaken. That's never happened, okay? Imagine, I mean, how scared does humanity get if there's not only an earthquake, but a heavenquake, all right? And there is an earthquake that makes the days of Uzziah seem like nothing. And then we, we kind of look up there that night after the earthquake's over, thanking our lucky stars, except there aren't any. We look up there to a sky of black, no more visible stars until one begins to appear. The sign of the Son of Man. And that star begins to appear and it starts to grow and it's getting closer and getting brighter and getting brighter. And all of the satanic humanity is just... 
trying to get courage for Armageddon, but uh, they know they're doomed. The sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. What a terrifying thing that's going to be for those that are taking the mark of the beast and have served the Antichrist. All right, well, as we get to this, um, he then teaches them the parable of imminency with a fig tree. And, and uh, you know, when, when, the, when the branch has already become tender, it puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. I mean, you know what the, tree, the branches look like when harvest is about to happen. You know, you recognize these things. Uh, are you going to be able to recognize when Christ is right at the door? Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Talking about the tribulational generation. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Now, of that day and hour, verse 36, of that day and that hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. Jesus Christ in his humanity had not had this date revealed to him. Okay, His omniscience knows it, of course. But he's not using his omniscience during his first advent incarnation. He's laying aside his privileges. He's not accessing what he knows. He's shut off that part of his omniscience. He's limiting his gnosis to what he has learned under the teaching of the Holy Spirit in his humanity. And so he does not know when this is going to be. Not in his first advent, not from his humanity. For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. Now here we have it. This is now the the metaphor of of Noah, but with respect to the godlessness that precedes the judgment. And it's a godlessness that uh, people don't notice. And and they don't notice the godlessness because they're too busy having a good time. Bios life is completely dominant and no one even gives a thought to the Lord or things of the Lord or spiritual life of any sort. So be just like the days of Noah. As in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And he preached for over a hundred years. That kook, right? What does he know? We're having a great time. Things are great. And they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So it will be the coming of the Son of Man. The suddenness of the judgment and the great time that they're all having enjoying bios life, enjoying biological life, and uh, not a thought at all to how godless they were, how displeasing they were to the creator God of the universe until the very day that came. That's why it's so beautiful that uh, Noah had the faith that he had. Okay? In one of the songs I've kind of become a big fan of lately, I just learned it uh, about a month ago, was... um, about Noah. It, was, uh, it, was, it wasn't raining when Noah obeyed. It wasn't raining when Noah obeyed. Okay? Wasn't a cloud in the sky, and there he is building an ark. And think about it. And it's kind of a, the song makes a good point. All right. So the godlessness preceding the wrath, the godlessness that has totally been lost on the people that are so busy living their, their bios life. Then, of course, we have the promise of never again. Never again after the wrath. And this is what God takes them to when they get off the ark. God says, never again. He says, never again. I find this extraordinary because the Jewish people today have a national motto, a national slogan of never again, right? And they adopted that after the Holocaust. They adopted that after uh, uh, World War II. And they got their homeland. They, They were restored as a nation. And they took for themselves the motto of never again as a national slogan, and yet that's God's promise to them, and it will be their promise, His promise to them at the second advent of Jesus Christ, that He will make Israel His own personal never-again promise, which we see here in Isaiah 54, verses 9 and 10. But the never-again promise to Noah when he got off the ark was in Genesis chapter 9. And so they get off the ark. In fact, you count the days and it's, it's worth your time to go through these chapters and count uh, the day and the month that they, he, they got on the boat, the day and the month that they get off the boat because it rained for 40 days and 40 nights, but then the waters kept rising and it was a year later that they get off the ark. 
You can also start to track these as uh, 30-day months and uh, 360-day years. And that'll be important for you with some Daniel studies coming up. But they get off the ark in Daniel chapter 9. And in verse 8, God spoke to Noah and his sons with him, saying, Behold, I myself do establish my covenant with you and your descendants after you, with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the cattle, every beast of the earth with you, all that comes out of the ark, even every beast. I establish my covenant with you, and all flesh shall never again, there it is, never again, be cut off by water, by the water of the flood. Never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. That's why the next judgment comes by fire. The next judgment is by fire, not by water, because of the never again promise. See? And then he gives the sign of the covenant. He gives the rainbow. And there you have again, Satan takes and wants to deny the history of this flood event, wants to deny the doctrine of the never again promise, wants to deny the dominion that humanity has over the animals, even by eating them. And uh, he denies all the Abrahamic co- uh, Noahic covenant blessings and then steals the rainbow for his own crusade and cause and these satanic uh, pursuits of uh, folks that want to deny the creator. All right, steal the rainbow and make it a sign of your own movement instead of the promise God intended it for. Well, that's a different sermon. I'm not going to preach that today. But as it was in the days of Noah, all right, this is what we have here in Isaiah 54, verses 9 and 10. So uh, just as I swore to the waters of Noah would not flood the earth again, so I have sworn that I will not be angry with you, nor will I rebuke you. How many times did Israel come under judgment? to the Philistines, to the Ammonites, to the Amorites, to uh, the Amalekites, to the Moabites, uh, eventually to the Assyrians, to the Babylonians, to the Persians, to the Greeks, to the Romans, a global dispersion. You know, you start to wonder what Gentile people have not (laughs) dominated the Jewish people. But he says, never again, never again. And when he gathers them at the second advent, when he brings them under the bond of the covenant, never again will the Jewish people rebel and come under the discipline that they've been under time and time again throughout the Old Testament. For the mountains may be removed and the hills may shake, but my loving kindness will not be removed from you. My covenant of peace will not be shaken. All right, well, once again will they be shaken, but once the tribulation is done, never again will they be shaken? And that's what they can look forward to. Then we have millennial Jerusalem, verses 11 through 17. Millennial Jerusalem is going to resemble heavenly Jerusalem, constructed with gem-encrusted battlements. Millennial Jerusalem will resemble heavenly Jerusalem, constructed with gem-encrusted battlements. It may not seem very functional. (laughs) It may seem like you might want something stronger on your walls. I mean, it looks pretty, it looks nice, but um, walls ought to be tough. Walls ought to be thick. Okay, what if this wall has to withstand, you know, cannons or damage or whatever? Don't worry about it, (laughs) okay? Because the creator God of the universe is seated on the throne. Uh, The walls are very decorative very beautiful, and they fulfill all the purpose that God intends for them. They're as tough as they need to be because God himself is in their midst. And uh, what, a, what a fun thing to think about. It's like streets of gold. You know, you ever think about walking down the streets of gold and, you know, is there ever a carnal part of you that thinks I should just, you know, chip off a part of that sidewalk and <laughs> start lining my pockets maybe with some of this stuff? Okay, except... If it's just lying around everywhere, then how valuable is it? Why, why am I treasuring it at this point? Why is it, is it no longer a precious metal because it's everywhere? Aspects there I think we should consider when it comes to our heavenly realities. All right. Verse 11. O afflicted one, storm-tossed and not comforted. At least not comforted until now. Okay? You're getting a new name. There is comfort on the way. The storms are over. The affliction is done. And you think of the, uh, the, the title here, afflicted one, storm-tossed, not comforted. These are the, this is the language that he's applying to Jerusalem. And um, 
He's very qualified to use these expressions because he himself is the despised one. He himself is the one forsaken by the nations. And so you look at the titles for Messiah that come in these earlier chapters, and now he himself is speaking and addressing Jerusalem in this, uh, in this way. Okay? And you can kind of imagine. I think it's, I don't know, I think it's kind of neat, kind of tender. Uh, you know, the nicknames that a, a man and a woman have for one another and the, the intimacy of their um, marriage or relationship or what have you. And I'm not telling you, not your business, but every, uh, every man and woman and what have you, I suspect many have such expressions. But think about it, afflicted, storm-tossed, not comforted. <laughs> That's kind of awkward, but it expresses the truth because he's the, he's the despised one, the rejected one. They had to look upon him whom they pierced and call upon him to save them. And he does. He does. See? And so instead of calling her Gomer, he gets to call her Beulah. You know, and you think about it, all these names from uh, the Old Testament prophets. All right. Behold, I will set your stones in antimony and your found... I had to look that up. I didn't know what that was. And your uh, foundations I will lay in sapphires. And so we have described here, we have described actually the work of what a jeweler would do when he prepares the, the, uh, the, the ring or he prepares the, the setting for the jewels and the kind of base that, uh, that the jewels get set in. And in particular, the, the costly material, that's what antimony is, the costly material that then forms the bed or the setting for the uh, for the gems to sit in, all right, and very black and uh, sometimes sparkly, but they help the the gems themselves to shine forth in uh, in a brighter contrast. And so uh, you know it seems pasty and black and ugly, but it is pasty and black and ugly. But look what's going to happen. You're going to you're going to set the gems in there, and all of a sudden, instead of pasty and black and ugly, now it has a function and it has a beauty and it combines together with with the uh, the precious stones. And beyond that, I can't illustrate because I'm out of my depth, <laughs> right? But this is the, uh, the procedure. I will set your stones in antimony and your foundations will lay in, I will lay in sapphires. Moreover, I will make your battlements of rubies. Sounds fragile. And your gates of crystal and your entire wall of precious stones. You know, do you think the world came to gaze at Solomon's wealth? Yeah, they did. Uh, but Solomon kept his wealth behind stronger walls, <laughs> all right? He had treasuries, he had vaults, and, and they came to hear his wisdom, and they came to see his splendor. But the walls of Solomon were stone, they were battlements, they were, uh, they were designed to withstand siege, and they were built by his father David. Okay, David couldn't build the temple, but he certainly built the fortress that was uh, the, the uh, battlements of Jerusalem. But think about what the Lord's going to have. I mean, just walking in the gate leaves you, wow, look at this place. (laughs) Man, can you imagine? And all your sons will be taught of the Lord, and the well-being of your sons will be great. And uh, prophecies here related to the sons of the afflicted one. These are going to be the, the Jewish inhabitants of Israel during the millennial kingdom. They themselves get to become the teachers of the Gentiles because they themselves are being taught by Jesus Christ. In righteousness you will be established. You will be far from oppression for you will not fear from terror for it will not come near you. There may be other parts of the world that get their reign shut off. Other parts of the world are going to have some problems during the thousand-year reign, but not Israel, not Jerusalem. In fact, if, uh, if an unrighteous man enters, he better not be there by morning. If he's caught in the city at sunrise, Jesus Christ executes him on the spot. If anyone fiercely assails you, it will not be from me. Whoever assails you will fall because of you. And you wonder, what will the terrorist attacks be like? What will, what will the, uh, the other attacks be like? It won't be uh, earthly warfare because swords will already be beaten into plowshares by them, but there will be some kind of attacks, hatred on the part of those that are serving, serving Satan. So behold, I myself have created the smith who blows the fire of coals and brings out a weapon for its work. I have created the destroyer to ruin no weapon that is formed against you will prosper. 
Now, I know a lot of people put this on the refrigerator and they claim this as a church age promise. It's not a promise to the body of Christ. It's not a promise to the church. If you want to claim it, at best, you can claim it on a secondary basis under principles of analogy. The fact that, yes, we are dear to the Lord, and yes, we are His bride, and yes, we have New Testament assurance of our provision and protection and whatnot. But um, specifically, we cannot say this is a church age passage because it's not. This is for Israel in the millennium. No weapon that is formed against you will prosper, and every tongue that accuses you in judgment you will condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their vindication is from me, declares the Lord. All right, so what we have here, four things I want to get out of this last portion. First of all, Jerusalem's fortifications will go from unornamented to opulent in an earthly reproduction of the heavenly architectural style. Think about it. <laughs> you know, this is this, the, the, the gems and the, and the precious metals and the wealth and all of that, that's, that's the kind of stuff that belongs in heaven. That's the stuff when we have visions of heaven, we see things like the crystal sea and the sapphire throne and, and different aspects there. The idea of that kind of architectural style being manifest upon the earth, that's, uh, that's kind of hard to imagine. And yet, that's what we're promised the millennium is going to be like. You know, I mean, there's a lot of things that we realize there's going to be some changes around here. All right? You know, nowadays, you know, a city designed like this would you know, would be robbed pretty quickly. You'd find they'd tear the building down, they'd tear the streets apart, the the plunderers would loot what they could and abscond with it. Christ won't let that happen in the millennial kingdom. Okay? Um, So we look at the description here in these verses, 11 and 12, and what do we see? We see the rubies, we see the sapphires, we see the precious stones, crystal, we see the, um, the gates of crystal and the wall of precious stones. And we have what is a replica, we have a, an imitation of style, if you will, with uh, heaven itself, such as presented for us in Exodus 24.10 and Revelation 4, verses 3 and 6, Revelation 21, verses 18 and through 21. When the heavenly Jerusalem descends, it has this same architectural style. This is where I ought to get Scott up here to give us a, a quick brief on architectural styles, right, to tell you the difference between Victorian and whatever. See, I can't even give you names to illustrate with, okay? The Tudor style, the Queen Anne style, whatever, named after British queens and whatnot. Um, Other styles of architecture, colonial style, different things, right? Okay, I'll stop. But you've got the concept. There are different types of style, and sometimes, um, well... They're, they're reminiscing about a, a different country or a different place or a different era, you know, a different you know, historical period or what have you. But take the idea of what is the architecture like in heaven? What are the streets like up there? What are the buildings like up there? What, what do we see when we do see glimpses of heaven? It's, 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 it almost boggles the mind. And copying that to bring it down to earth now, to exhibit it on the earth. I find this interesting. All right, so in Exodus 24... Here's a chapter that, uh, or an episode that's not as well known, surprisingly enough, because it's in Exodus. Everybody knows Exodus, right? Except this little obscure night dinner party that's hosted in Exodus 24.10. And um, however this works... He's already given the law. He's already given the Ten Commandments. They've got the tablets. They've got uh, the expectations, different things. And, uh, and so far, Israel's all excited, thinking, yeah, this is great. We can do this. <laughs> and uh, so the Lord says to Moses in Exodus 24, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron and Nadab and Abihu, your brother and your two older sons, and 70 of the elders of Israel, and you shall worship at a distance. Moses alone, however, shall come near to the Lord, but they shall not come near, nor shall the people come up with him. And so these 70 elders get to come a little closer. Aaron and two sons get to come a little closer. He's got four sons total, but only the older two get to come with Aaron at this point. And so uh, Moses came and recounted to the people all the words of the Lord and the ordinances and the 
All the people answered with one voice and said, All the words which the Lord has spoken, we will do. The biggest lie of the Old Testament right there. Okay? Because, I mean, man, they already had unconditional promises with Abraham. And now they're receiving all these conditional promises under Mosaic law? Why didn't somebody not stand up and say, No thanks. (laughs) We can't do that. We're stiff-necked. We're rebels. We're losers. We're not going to fulfill this. We'll, we'll go ahead and continue on in the unconditional Abrahamic covenant, thank you. But nobody does. And they said, oh yeah, we can do that. So Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord, and he rose early in the morning, built an altar at the foot of the mountain with 12 pillars for the 12 tribes of Israel. Anyway, we get down here, and it's kind of obscure. But verse 9, Moses went up with Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and the 70 elders of Israel. Now they get to come closer than the other people. And they saw the God of Israel. In the New Testament, we're told no one has seen God at any time. And so it's not clear. Is this a Christophany? Is this Jesus Christ himself? Is this a symbolic vision of the Father? How do we handle this? Well, we can ignore that for a moment. Just look at the architecture. Okay? And under his feet, there appeared to be a pavement of sapphire, as clear as the sky itself. Wow. That's a sidewalk I've never walked on. Okay, that's, uh, that's extraordinary. It'd be fun to see that someday. Well, we will. Yet he did not stretch out his hand against the nobles of the sons of Israel, and they saw God, and they ate, and they drank. And there's a dinner party that they took part here. The 70 elders of Israel, along with Moses and Aaron and Aaron's two sons. And uh, so whether this was Jesus Christ in a Christophany or a symbolic representation of the Father, could have been a, a paterophany, all right? Well, obviously it was not God himself because God is spirit. He's not a body. But however the case went, they had a preview of their coming kingdom. They had a preview feast of the feast they've been waiting for now for all these thousands of years. And there's the... Uh, the, the glimmer there. All right, Revelation chapter 4, we get more glimpses of heaven. Revelation chapter 4. And this is uh, the Apostle John's personal rapture event because uh, he's on the Isle of Patmos. He's receiving the message about the seven churches. He's on earth to receive that message. He's in exile on the Isle of Patmos, and he gets the message to the seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3. But he cannot receive chapters 4 and following from his earthly perspective. In fact, he is ordered to come up to heaven to receive the, the rest of the book. And so after these things, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, come up here, and I will show you what must take place after these things. And that is so key. The Apostle John will go up to heaven, and he will receive chapters 4 through 21. He will receive, or through 22, he receives the rest of the book of Revelation from the perspective of heaven itself. That is vital because it helps to portray the the dispensational outline of the book that is, uh, in fact, given in Revelation 1.19. Therefore, write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after these things. Revelation 1.19 gives us the outline for the book. The things you have seen is chapter 1, the things that are is the church age, chapters 2 and 3. And the things which will take place after these things is the, the tribulation and the millennium after the church. Chapters 4 through 22. And that very same language about after these things and the come up here is in Revelation 4.1. After these things. Come up here. I will show you what must take place after these things. So, I tell you... <laughs> you encounter someone that thinks the church has to go through the tribulation just show them this stuff it's easy as anything say look it's after these things it it can't happen until we're gone until we're done because it's after not during after these things and then john goes to heaven to observe all the tribulation from a heavenly perspective we're going to be looking down on this place when wrath gets poured out 
Anyway, so immediately I was in the spirit and behold, and so he was spiritually transported to heaven. Behold, a throne was in standing in heaven and one was sitting on the throne and he who was sitting was like a jasper stone and a sardius in appearance. There was a rainbow around the throne, like an emerald in appearance. Around the throne were 24 thrones and upon the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their head. And before the throne... Verse 6, before the throne, there was something like a sea of glass, like crystal. But you can actually stand on that sea. Why do you think Jesus walked on the water? All right, You can stand on that crystal sea. It's the platform for the heavenly choir. Imagine the acoustics on that platform, huh? And uh, in the center and around the throne, four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. And so we have another glimpse of architectural style. And then finally, Revelation 21 when the heavenly, heavenly Jerusalem descends, it's been made ready as a bride is adorned. Another glimpse of heavenly architecture. Revelation 21, verses 18 through 21. Verse 10 says, He carried me away in the Spirit to a great and high mountain showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. This is the Jerusalem from above that we'll see Wednesday night in, in Galatians chapter 4. The Jerusalem from above is a contrast to Mount Sinai in the Hagar uh, Sarah allegory. Showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. Her brilliance was like a very costly stone as the stone of a crystal clear jasper had a great and high wall with 12 gates. And here's the wall that we're looking at in Isaiah 54. The gates were, at the gates were 12 angels, and names were written on them, which are the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel. And there were three gates on the east and north. Let me, man, where's time go? And uh, the foundation stones, 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. That's Matthias, not Paul, by the way, for apostle number 12. And uh, so he tells John to go ahead and measure it, and he measures it. The city is laid out as a square, and length is as great as its width. And he measured the city with a rod, 1,500 miles, length and width equal. 1,500 miles, like from here to Los Angeles, north to Canada. That's a big city. Its length and width and height are equal. 1,500 miles high. A cube, a pyramid, or a moon uh, revolving above the earth at a height of 1,500 miles. And he measured its wall 72 yards according to human measurements, which are also angelic measurements, in case you were wondering. All right. And the material of the wall was jasper. The city was pure gold like clear glass. The foundation stones of the city were adorned with every kind of precious stone. And I list them all here in these verses, 19 through 21. It's kind of a fun Greek vocabulary study to work your way through these. All right. Does that seem functional? <laughs> Does it seem decorative? It's very decorative. Decorative in, in a way that only God himself could do. And uh, does it need to withstand cannon fire? Does it need to withstand uh, artillery? Does it need to withstand cruise missiles or uh, terrorist bombings? Okay. God himself is going to do away with all of that beating the uh, swords and the plowshares and the spears into uh, pruning hooks. Now, think about it. Going from unornamented to opulent. Does that jog your thinking on anything? Does that jog your memory about anything? Does it seem like you've heard the story before? Or maybe you've heard the story the other direction? Was there somebody, in fact, that went from the most beautiful gem-encrusted dragon you've ever seen in your life to the un, un- uh, unornamented Leviathan that he became after the fall. You see, Satan himself was a gem-encrusted beauty until his fall, until God destroyed the beauty of the prideful one. And so really what's happening here with Jerusalem is the inversion, the, the, the reverse of Satan's fall. Because Jerusalem is becoming ornamented in beauty and glory, just the opposite of what happened to uh, to Satan before his fall, and this uh, this could be new to you unless you've been around for a while, or unless we were part of our angelology series. 
uh, Ezekiel 28, verses 13 and 18, you understand that uh, the dragon was, uh, was uh, the greatest of any creature that God ever made. We uh, discussed this, uh, gave him his Hebrew name here as the seal of perfection, uh, the full of wisdom and perfect in beauty, the Chotham Tachanith, we called him from the Hebrew. And uh, you were in Eden, the garden of God. Just boggles my mind, the people that try to turn this into a human king. (laughs) What human king was ever in Eden? The only human beings that were in Eden were Adam and Eve. And they didn't stay that long. And you're talking to a, to, a, to a creature here, a being of some sort. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Well, who else was in that garden with Adam and Eve? The serpent was, was he not? Every precious stone was your covering. The ruby, the topaz, the diamond. Does this sound familiar? The barrel, the onyx, the jasper. Imagine such a thing. This is not a zoological animal. If you think about the, the animals that have fur or feathers or scales, or, you know, skin, or whatever, hair, whatever other kind of plumage or or, or external hide that God gives to the different animals. Um, uh, I imagine this one will go extinct pretty quickly. (laughs) You know, hunters look at this and say, there's a pelt, there's a, there's something I want. Okay, yeah, dress your wife in something like this. But these are the, these are the gems that this dragon was, was created with. Lapis lazuli, turquoise, emerald, the gold, the workmanship of your settings and sockets was in you on the day that you were created. This is not a biological, a zoological animal that was birthed or hatched or otherwise brought about by uh, biological processes. He was a created being. And on the day he was created, he was sinless and perfect and gem encrusted. You were the Messiah cherub who covers... We're told he was a cherub. That was his rank of angelic being. He was of cherub rank, but he was also the Messiah cherub and who covers or who guards. And I placed you there. You're on the holy mountain of God. You walked in the midst of the stones of fire. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. That is backwards from our human experience. You and I are sinners from the day we're born until righteousness is imputed to our account. Amen. (laughs) All right. We are unrighteous. We are sinners. We are condemned on the road to hell until you trust in Jesus Christ for eternal life. And then righteousness is imputed to your account. With this uh, cherub, he was righteous the day he was created, but unrighteousness was then found in him and he fell. And so it says here, and interestingly enough, in the description of this, he defiles his sanctuaries. He's the first money changer in the first temple and all of the stuff that, that angers the Lord. Verse 18, in the unrighteousness of your trade, you profaned your sanctuaries. Therefore, I have brought fire from the midst of you. Okay, remember this creature breathes fire until God brings it from his midst and consumes him with it. I have brought fire from the midst of you and it has consumed you. He is consumed by his own fire. I have turned you to ashes on the earth in the eyes of all who see you. And all who know you among the peoples are appalled at you. You have become terrified. This is why he now has to disguise himself as an angel of light because his natural form now is, is hideous to, uh, to behold. Then you go to Job 41 and you see the description of, of Leviathan there. Are there any gems in, in, uh, for Leviathan? No, not a one. There's armor, there's scales, there's, there's spears. I mean, there's the claws, there's the teeth, there's the mighty tail, there's the wings, there's the breathing of fire. There is the, there is the Leviathan monologue that I think inspired Tolkien for the smog um, monologue in, uh, in The Hobbit, okay? But no gems, no jewels. He is a blackened monstrosity compared to uh, his previous glory. All right. What else? Two more things. The Jewish people will receive personal instruction from the Lord Jesus Christ. It's spoken of here. It's going to be expanded elsewhere. We'll have more detail on this in Jeremiah 
We get to the new covenant promise of Jeremiah 31. But a contemporary of Isaiah was Micah. And I think Micah spells it out in uh, even more vivid language than Isaiah does. Here's a big debate among the scholars. Who Who stole from who? Or who borrowed from who? In a sanctified plagiarism, when the Holy Spirit allows both authors to write their books, the Holy Spirit uh, allows, you know, uh, Isaiah to write Isaiah and Micah to, to write Micah. One of them borrowed from the other in, uh, in, a, in a Holy Spirit sanctified plagiarism. So you can read the literature on that if you'd like and come to an opinion. I tell you what I think, but I can't remember. I've gone back and forth on that so many times. I finally said, well, one of them did from the other one, and I don't know. But Isaiah 54, 13, all your sons will be taught of the Lord. Jesus even cited this in John 6 about being taught by, taught by God. All of your sons will be taught of the Lord, and the well-being of your sons will be great. That Israel had the chance to look forward to not only a king that frees them from Gentile dominion, but a king that teaches them that they will have the law written upon their heart, on uh, the tablets of their heart, not just stones of like, uh, like Moses gave them. Micah 4, verses 2 through 5. Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum. There we go, Micah. See, I can still find books the old-fashioned way. Logos has left me slightly crippled in my uh, sword drills. Micah chapter 4. It will come about in the last days that the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains. It will be raised above the hills. The peoples will stream to it. And why? Why does Israel become the worldwide uh, tourist destination? Many nations will come and say, Come and let us go to the mountain of the Lord and to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us about his ways, that we may walk in his paths. For from Zion will go forth the law, even the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between many peoples and render decisions for mighty distant nations. They will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into printing hooks. See, we're not there yet. If you want to be a pacifist, you can be a pacifist, but it's dangerous to be a pacifist in this violent world. I don't see Jesus on his throne yet. Nations will not lift up sword against nation, and never again will they train for war. Each of them, now the citizens of Israel have this to look forward to, will sit under his vine and under his fig tree with no one to make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken." You know, sometimes I joke about, wouldn't it be interesting if we all had our own personal burning bush in our backyard, right? You've heard me joke about that before? And the fact that we don't, we don't, we have, we have the complete canon of Scripture, right? We don't need, like Moses, to approach a burning bush, and I tell you, put that bush out if you've got a burning bush in your backyard. But here's what Israel will have, the Jewish people living in the land of promise during the millennium, each one under his vine, each one under his fig tree. And what is the instructive nature of this, uh, of this uh, vegetation? Makes me wonder. <laughs> okay, Each of them will send it under his vine and under his fig tree with no one to make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. What a delight. All right, this is what they have to look forward to. Almost done. Jeremiah 31, verses 33 and 34. You think, well, I know Jeremiah, right? Jeremiah 31, 31. Who doesn't know Jeremiah 31, 31? It's a new covenant. Days are coming, declares the Lord. When I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, the house of Judah, not like the Mosaic covenant, which I made with their fathers. And the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant, which they broke, although I was a husband of them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days declares the Lord, I will put my law within them and on their heart I will write it and they will be, I will be their God and they shall be my people. They will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother saying, know the Lord for they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. They become teachers to the Gentiles. No Jewish person will need another Jewish person to teach them because every Jewish person will be spirit indwelled and every Jewish person will receive the teaching directly from Jesus Christ. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin. I will remember no 
more. Israel will be established in righteousness and protected by their vindicator. Protected by their vindicator. And even when Satan leads leads the final Gog-Magog revolt, and even though Satan's armies will surround Jerusalem one final time, they don't have to defend themselves. In fact, not even the Lord. It's the, as fire comes down from heaven. Fire comes from God the Father to, uh, to destroy this final rebellion. Well, until that day, we're not there yet. Jerusalem's not there yet. Israel's not there yet. We're still dealing with the darkness and the sin and the Muslims and everything else, okay? But God's in charge. He knows what he's doing. And uh, we can count on that. Father, I thank you for your truth. I thank you for these chapters. I thank you for the uh, crucifixion of our Savior. I thank you for what he's promised, what he's promised Israel. I thank you what he's promised all of humanity. I thank you for the gospel invitation that comes in chapter 55. Looking forward to the, to the class, and it won't be next week. It'll be the week after, Father, when you get us to Isaiah 55. But in all things, Father, I pray that uh, this book study will be a blessing to every believer of this assembly, that we would be transformed by the richness and the wealth of this book. Father, help us to know in our day and age what our application is as we rejoice in the, the perfection of our Savior. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.